Welcome to episode 74 of the Hard Truth About B2B Commerce. I'm your co-host Isaiah Ballinger, and I'm back with Tim after I think we lost a week, maybe. Or I think we we lost one week, and uh, yes, Timothy Peterson here, loving uh, loving us episode 74. I guess we'll have to have a 75th anniversary celebration next week. You know, do something special. You know, <laughs> that might be fun, right? Uh, so I just want to give a, uh, I'm continuing a tradition we started on uh, a while ago. Uh, people who are our uh, avid listeners, our fans. So I'm going to give you a couple, sh- give a couple shout outs. Uh, Gunilla Halpern. Uh, she's someone I worked with many, many years ago. I found out she's a listener of our podcast. Uh, she works a big database company out in Colorado. Uh, so shout out to Gunilla. Uh, also a uh, shout out to Rick Watson, uh, who is a, a link. Oh, really? Yeah, I know him. <laughs> Rick is Rick is great. He's a listener of our podcast, I found out. Very happy to hear that. Uh, and uh, let's see, I think there was somebody else. I can't remember if I should give a shout out to Pablo Pasmino last week. I may have. If not, you know, I gave him I gave him two shout outs. So it's, a, it's good to good to you know say <laughs> hi to our fans. Because not everyone's gonna listen to every episode and you know, that's, you never know. That's right, it's exactly <laughs> and uh, uh you know. Thank you to everybody. Uh, also, Steve, uh, Steve uh, Feuerstein, a former guy I work with, a former uh, boss at another startup I work with. He's also a listener. So thank you to our, them and all of our many, many, many listeners. Uh, I'm just going to give a quick pause so that you can hear uh, uh, promos from our sponsors, and then we'll dive right in. Our first sponsor is Punch Out To Go. Punch-Out-To-Go is a global B2B integration company specializing in connecting commerce business platforms with e-procurement and ERP applications. Punch-Out-To-Go's iPaaS technology seamlessly links business applications to automate the flow of purchasing data. With their solution, you can immediately reduce integration complexities for punch-out catalogs, electronic purchase orders, invoices, and other B2B sales order automation documents in order to accelerate business results. Balance is our other sponsor. Balance is a B2B e-commerce payment solution that works well for you and your buyers. It offers a seamless one-click checkout for almost any payment method, including ACH, wire, checks, cards, even terms. It's used by leaders in B2B e-commerce, and it's as easy as buying a shirt from Amazon. Check them out at getbalance.com, book a session, and tell them what your needs are. They are the first dedicated payment platform for B2B e-commerce, 100% tailored to your needs. Thanks again to our sponsor, Balance. Okay, everyone, I'm going to throw that right back to Isaiah to introduce our guest. We've got Fiona Norton from BigCommerce today. Yeah, Fiona, uh, thanks for thanks for joining. Uh, I think we had uh, big commerce on a long. I mean, it's kind of crazy. We started this during COVID, uh, especially because we were like, well, we can't really do events and sales are tough right now. Like, we got to do something, and it was a good time to kind of start a podcast. And uh, we had big commerce on fairly early, but it's been so long. I mean, you guys have launched so many new features and. Just love to hear more about yourself and and, and big commerce because it's been probably over a year since we had someone on. So, yeah, awesome. Well, I'm also a listener and friend of the pod, so I'm excited to be a guest today um, on, yeah. on the other side of the seat. Um, I am a manager on the product marketing team at Big Commerce. Um, I lead product marketing for our B2B merchant segment. Um, I actually started my career working with Kroger and really large CPG companies. Um, so it was really interesting at that time that I was doing that. E-commerce was kind of just hitting grocery and CPG it was one of the, um, I guess, last frontiers, maybe um, right before kind of this more industrial B2B wave, which we'll get to. Um, but a lot of other industries were already huge in e-commerce and grocery really wasn't yet. Um, a lot of people questioned whether people would even want to shop for groceries online. Um, of course, post-COVID, that seems ridiculous. There's so many people that um, are just doing click and collect and um, delivery now. So uh, it's hard to imagine back. But at that time, people really did question it. And 
online just made up a really small portion of Kroger's total sales. Um, now they're one of the biggest retailers. I think they're within the top 10 e-commerce retailers in the US. Um, wow. So that was just a fascinating time to work there. Um, and I was working on their e-commerce transformation, um, kind of pushing forward strategy to um, move more of that that massive business online. How are we going to get shoppers so, uh, If you don't interested? mind, I have a funny anecdote for grocery, if you don't mind. But... Yeah. It, I think it's a behavior thing, right? In e-commerce in general, right? People are just, you know, you get comfortable doing a certain thing and you don't want to change. But even myself, I went to pick up groceries from uh, Stop and Shop as like, they had Peapod. I don't know if you uh, heard of oh, that. Oh, yeah. Uh, I didn't actually know how to do the pickup because I'd never done it before, but you have to like call the number and it's like there. But I like went in the store. I'm like, how do I like pick this up? And she's like, you just call the number and we'll come out and bring it to you. Like I was like, I felt like I was like one of those like, you know, non-tech savvy people that just like doesn't know how to like pick up the order. <laughs> yeah, you actually work in e-commerce, but <laughs> yeah. But it, the point is, I think it's a learning curve, right? Like you just kind of have to get comfortable with a new behavior, like one just placing the order online and then you show up and then you have to like call this number and tell them that you're well, here. Well, you know, in the pickup area, I have a stop and shop near me as well. And there's a teapot, of course, uh, you know, they, that they use. And uh, there's a sign that has a QR outside in the pickup area and it says if you haven't done this before uh you know scan this and scan for instructions or something like that and uh it it's pretty great there are like six or seven parking spaces and a big qr code see i ignored the signs that's the problem <laughs> I see signs and i'm like i'm not gonna read that sign like and then i was like well, what do i do <laughs> i get it email didn't really say much in terms of what to do at the order so i was like legitimately confused but the point i'm making is i think a lot of this is really just like a behavioral shift and once you do it once then the second time i remember doing uh self-checkout and i was like so intimidated by self-checkout the first time mm -hmm. i was like feel, feel confident. I'm like a checkout master, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny you make that, you tell that story because I think that's the exact point I wanted to make. Like I just became such a nerd about this behavioral change and like how impactful it is. And, like once people do try it, um, it just becomes that much more natural. And a lot of times they love it. And I think that has a lot of parallels to B2B e-commerce today and what we're all working on. Um, and not only from the merchant side, but from their end customer side too. And so just through that experience, I got really excited about um, big changes that were happening and getting to be on the other side of that now at big commerce and actually building the, the platform, um, the technology for brands like Kroger and others um, to actually go online. That's been really exciting to be on this other side. Yeah, that's awesome. So uh, tell us, uh, tell us about what big commerce has been up to on the B2B side. I know you guys made some recent launches and what's kind of the, the latest, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been working on, um, B2B at big commerce for two years now. Um, when I started, it was, you know, we had a lot of B2Bs flocking to big commerce because our platform was just a really good natural fit for them, but we didn't necessarily have purpose-built B2B functionality um, as much within the platform for them. But because we saw this big wave of B2Bs just naturally coming, even without the product, without the marketing, um, we saw a huge opportunity. So started out with that market research on what do we actually need to go build um, and, and what do we what do B2Bs want to see. And then last year we launched B2B edition, um, which brought a lot more B2B specific functionality um, to big commerce. And since then, um, we've just been ramping up, um, thinking more about our future roadmap, what other features we want to build in, um, integrating uh, that B2B edition closer in with big commerce's core, um, and just hiring up a, a pretty big B2B team now. So it's been really exciting to see kind of how we've shifted from, oh, B2B is the side thing we do to B2B is a core focus of the company. And um, I think another piece of this is it's not always that separate from B2C. And so we've started to think about it a lot more holistically. Um, I, there are several reasons for that, but one of those being that hybrid B2B and B2C customer is really big for us. Um, and that could be anyone from those doing mainly B2B, but starting a little bit of direct to consumer or on the other side, you know, they're consumer led, but they want to dabble in wholesale those cases all the way to huge multinational brands that have really large B2B and B2C channels running side by side. Um, so we started to think about it a lot more um, cohesively together and less of this side thing that we do. 
Um, yeah, that's been I mean, really cool to see. I really think that B2B, uh, and we had a mentor that talked about like, really it's complexity, right? And that's really the difference. And I think that B2B companies, especially or B2B slash B2C or whatever you are, instead of thinking of it as like, oh, B2B is so different from B2C and we have these like different silos. It's about like, how do you uh, give your customers the right experience? And it's like a spectrum of complexity. So you have like maybe some customers that just want to buy like the simplest thing and it's just like add the card and buy it. And it's a very simple experience. And then there's like a level above that where maybe they get like special pricing or there's some sort of B2B aspect to that. And then you get to the extreme level where it's like, request a quote and they're like, or you have like this like company level hierarchy within the ordering process and, you know, purchase order and all sorts of LTL where it starts to get more complicated with like the shipping and things like that. So it's, it's really right. a, more of like a spectrum. And I think if, if companies did a better job thinking about where they are in the spectrum and like how, how much they want to appeal to different people on the spectrum, they probably have more success versus just being like, Oh, it's this, B2B, we're not B2C, so we can't do that. You know what I mean? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, with our native product, we were doing really well on the more simple. And with B2B edition, we've moved up a bit on that. Um, I think there's still a really high end of complexity that we're probably not the best fit for. And there are platforms that are great for that. But uh, with B2B edition, we're serving a pretty broad swath of, of B2B customers. And I think that complexity spectrum is exactly how we think about it, too. And one thing I would add, too, is that, you know, a lot of my conversations with, uh, you know, clients and folks that I'm working with, you know, the conversation used to be kind of what we're saying, like it's B2B or it's B2C or it's products or it's services, you know, these big dichotomies. And that's not really the case. You know, people who are doing products are also offering services. People who are doing B2B are also you know doing B2C and everything in between. So really, we're trying to find new terminologies and just saying, okay, it's commerce, right? And that's something that we've talked about a lot in the context of Trellis. You know, it is commerce, right? And then what types of commerce are you, you know, engaging in? What are you doing and how are you doing this? What's automated? What isn't? What are the touch points? And it's it's become a better conversation, really. And I think it's just opening up a lot more opportunities for people. Yeah, I think so too. And it's interesting you mention um, some of those, you know, extremes. And I think one thing we're trying to do at Big Commerce is really be that balance, be that middle ground that's offering a bit of the best of both worlds. And so there are these inherent tensions in e-commerce. I think there's, you know, easy and then really full featured. Um, there's, you know, being fast and then being like extremely flexible and customizable and what we're trying to do at Big Commerce, everything we do is finding that balance where we want to offer powerful features, but that are easy for to use, even for business users. Um, we want to offer simplicity in customization. So trying to be, you know, not the most flexible or the easiest of all time, but the only ones that are kind of striking that balance. And I think that's part of the reason why we've seen a lot of success in B2B. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think we we all agree. I know it's kind of like, you know, uh, almost a dirty word, maybe in the big commerce uh, world, which is Shopify. I mean, I think they're, they, they've, they've really done uh, a good job on the simplicity side. And like you said, the easy side. Um, but we don't see them very often B2B. And I think it's because B2B has requirements generally, obviously, this is general. And I'm, there are, it's not to say there's zero people that are B2B on Shopify, but it's much less common that we see them on Shopify versus other platforms. Um, and I think they, they're more on the simplicity side. And then you have folks that are on like the super enterprise complex side, but a lot of people just kind of can't afford that and they get in over their head. I mean, I'm sure you see people that are unhappy with some of these uh, <laughs> very expensive feature rich platforms, like you said, that can do everything, but you might not need that, right? Or you're- uh, right. Or your, you know, your team can't really use it, doesn't know how to use it, or you're spending so much money maintaining it. Um, so we're trying to offer that like benefits of SaaS, taking care of some of that maintenance for you, being easier to use. But I think we've really differentiated away from Shopify, especially in B2B with B2B edition, because we yep. did add some of those, you know, the account hierarchy with user roles and permissions, um, mm -hmm. the sales masquerading, the quoting. Um and that's another thing we've really focused on. And we actually had two acquisitions this year um, 
B2B Ninja, formerly known as Quote Ninja, um, should they do best in class quoting and then Bundle B2B, who we were partnering with um, to produce our B2B edition product. Do you see that eventually kind of like merging together into kind of one robust B2B version of BigCommerce? I mean, kind of assuming since you own it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. Um, and so, you know, there's this debate about what we want to have be within the B2B edition and what we want to bring into kind of the core product. Because like we said, we're always having this balance where we want to have more and more features um, available for everybody. But we also want to balance that with that ease of use and not bloating up the platform with features that you might not want to use. Yeah, not um, and so, B2B edition, so you don't want to over overkill the the current the, the the basic version. Yeah. Yeah. Right, exactly. But we are planning to make that B2B edition a lot more robust and uh, building up our product team. That's awesome. Yeah, that's think, really exciting. Yeah, I think one of the things that's just kind of connected to this too is that there were a few announcements, I guess, that came out of Oracle this week that they're you know, now the the big opportunity for them for the next few years is B2B e-commerce. And I was like, wow. It only took till 2022 to figure that out. I know, it was like, it only, but, but what's funny Some guys in their homes during COVID seem to have this figured out a few years. Yeah. Have they been listening to the podcast? But, but they're probably probably (laughs) listening to the podcast and hello, Oracle, if you are, we're happy to consult (laughs) for you. But, but really what's funny is that they're saying, what we're talking, we are saying what we're talking about. That's the reason that I brought them up. It's like we have realized, you know, that this is, uh, <laughs> it's a Tiffany. It's just so genius. They couldn't figure it out before, but but you know, yeah, Oracle they have the deep NetSuite ERP background. So and I mean, I know for a fact there's a ton of big commerce customers that are using NetSuite. Yep. So I mean, they're already doing the B two B process, but a lot of it's probably still offline or. They're calling in and st- manually placing the orders on Oracle or NetSuite or whichever version of the systems they are. You know? Well, with their billions, it'll it'll just be interesting to watch like how they try to catch up or how they try to really get ahead. You know, that's yeah. that's really what I'm thinking about the, all of these announcements this week. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, that is interesting. Yeah, the ERP world, especially, I think is is one of the biggest challenges that we see in B2B is that. You know, they're also ingrained in these ERP systems and sometimes they're on old versions or it, it's funny because a lot of times when you talk to these companies, they don't have like an expert or even much internal expertise to do much on their own ERP, but their whole business revolves around the ERP system with like inventory accounting and all the complex data and bringing that into an e-commerce platform seems to be one of the biggest challenges we see, which is, you know, surfacing the data to the customer. Uh, I, and I'm not sure how much you guys are seeing that on your end, but been a oh yeah, we we definitely are, and I think that's one of the reasons why we do emphasize flexibility, and we don't want to force people to use BigCommerce as their source of, source of truth when we know ERPs are uh, the main source of, source of truth for so many B2B companies. And so yeah, we're really focused on ERP integration, so that's definitely a key piece. I believe you guys partnered with uh, Acumatica as one of them and what are maybe yeah, the, other partnerships or are you guys working on more of that within the ERP ecosystem or Yeah, we are. Um we're trying to be really flexible to be able to allow just bring your own ERP like anything that you have, um but there are certainly ones like Acumatica that that we work with more often. Gotcha. So you have some that you're working with more often, but you want to be pretty pretty agnostic to that. It's the same approach we take. I think uh, most companies do not want to change their ERP because it's such a monumental task. Uh, so uh, when I hear people are switching their ERP, I'm like, oh, well, this is going to be a slow sales cycle. We'll probably uh, <laughs> we'll talk to you in like three years and then maybe we'll get the sale. <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and, and I'm sure this is something that, that you know, every, our, us and our listeners come up against. But, you know, when I talk to people in those initial conversations saying, you know, we need to do something with e-commerce. Let's talk about what the options are. They often say, the first thing they say is we can't change our ERP. You know, we can't. Yeah, that's usually a common, yeah, we see that a lot. Are you guys building any stronger partnerships with the integration partners like Saligo or doing more stuff yourselves? Uh, I know kind of you're already doing that with Acumatica, but are you trying to kind of make that piece that I know the APIs is a big focus of you guys. You guys have like really strong APIs and GraphQL. So I guess what's the angle that you're kind of taking to make this better for everyone? Yeah, I would say like um, strengthening the APIs, like getting that, you know, 
being the most flexible we can possibly be because we really do want it to be like bring your own but we are also working with Saligo and others like we want to have we're kind of coming at it from all angles I guess partnerships and engineering but we really want to make it um, as flexible as possible we don't want to ever lock anybody into a certain stack yeah yeah no no you know you guys do a great job of that with 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 payment gateways and they can pretty much use whatever payment gateway they want um so that's that's pretty cool um anything else that uh any other you know we can kind of move on from into other uh i'd love to hear the stats that you mentioned we can go to that next but any other cool things you guys are working on i know uh well i do want to touch on multi-store is now live that was uh, something that we thought was pretty pretty cool and i think mm-hmm. as to us and and are like the first true kind of SaaS multi-store e-commerce platform um that we've seen at least maybe there's yeah but well, we haven't seen it <laughs> yeah the multi-store front launch was was huge for us um that one has uh been coming for a long time we were really excited about it uh, and the merchants are really excited about it too so um we've seen a lot of you know really big it's part of our move into the enterprise space as well like if really big brands they really need that multi-site capability and um, that's another focus for big commerce not just within b2b but overall is um moving more up market how are we becoming more enterprise ready while still serving that um the small business end and and not leaving that behind but really hitting that balance where if you are an enterprise brand and you want something easier we have the features and we have the capabilities for you to do that and i think multi-storefront was really a critical piece of that i mean i sometimes find that sometimes the small medium-sized businesses have harder requirements than the enterprise um sometimes they do need multi-store for whatever reason they don't necessarily have to be an enterprise to go international or have some of these things you know so yeah kind of a vague term right though do you mean like fortune 500 or do you mean like you know, it's, uh, you know, it's like, it can mean a lot of things, right? <laughs> yeah, it can mean, it can mean a lot of things, definitely. Um, maybe not, you know, top 10 e-commerce retailers in the world, but moving <laughs> further past that mid-market space where we've always done really well and, and starting to go into what many would consider like a real enterprise business. Yeah. Well, you know, part of part of what I see about multi-store that's been interesting is, and it's what you said, Isaiah, about sort of that, difference between the small and medium and, and the enterprise and how these are different. Sometimes the smaller businesses, it's a question of the the brand ownerships and exactly how things are structured. They acquire something and then they're in the process of doing something with that acquisition, but they still want to, you know, leverage whatever tech and tools they have over here and these teams. And it becomes this really complicated thing. Whereas there's a hotel chain I've worked with where they have 39 brands and they have all of these different sites, you know, they're fine just saying, okay, we're going to change the way it works across 39 different, you know, stores, right? They could do that, but you can't really, it's harder to do that when you're like smaller and you have this longer process and, you know, multiple teams in different places. It gets complicated. Like you said, some of the teams aren't as mature, so they need autonomy and they get to work on one site different from the other site. And, yeah, and then the, the whole national yeah. thing too, right? I mean, some of this is just having the, the region specific focus. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We've and we've seen a lot of growth in the EMEA region, especially. And so um having that multi-site capability is really, really big in Europe where they're serving um a lot of different countries, having to have a lot of different um currencies, different products available for each country. And I think the whole idea of multi-storefront is kind of an extension of of some. Uh, values that big commerce has always um, brought to the table and kind of hung our hat on. And, you know, having B2B and B2C on one platform has been really huge for us um, because a lot of the customers that come to us, um, B2B merchants had to have two separate platforms, one for their B2B channel, one for their B2C channel and teams that were completely separate, um, a lot of different management. So we already were bringing those things together um, and allowing people to manage both from big commerce, but now having multi-storefront, you can actually bring that together even more where um, you're managing multiple storefronts from a yeah, single backend. Yeah, have uh, two different websites, but one backend and one one infrastructure. And mm-hmm. Yeah. Complicated to manage to one site versus, yeah. I think multi-site sounds, compli- uh, we're kind of, really it's like multi-front end, right? You have two different kind of, 
front end experiences, but it's really one site in the sense that the software is all pretty much the same. You know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Multi-storefront is how we refer to it. Yeah. Um, so tell us, you guys did this recent survey. Uh, can you give us some information about that and kind of talk about that? It's pretty interesting. Yeah, so we did a market research study, um, not just of big commerce merchants, but um, a broad sample of B2B merchants across all platforms and even offline or those that were really new to online. Maybe they had an, an online presence, but just a non-transactional catalog, for example. So we got a really good look across the broad swath of B2B merchants out there, what they're interested in. Um, one of the most interesting findings that we learned is that um, we asked them, what's your top priority for the coming year? Um, and just hearing the things that they care about most, I think was really fascinating. Um, the number one thing they cared about most was onboarding customers to buy online, uh, which was interesting to me because it seems really simple on its surface. Okay, you're, you, you built a new site. Um, you have to now get your customers to come use it. Um, but that's actually a really big challenge for a lot of B2Bs for multiple reasons. They could have um, customers that are just more set in their ways. They're they're used to ordering on the phone or directly with their salesperson calling on them. And they just don't really want to change what they're doing. Um, they don't see a problem with it. Or um, their sales team, the merchant sales team might not really be pushing it because they're afraid that it might, you know, infringe on their job because now e-commerce is selling the products by itself and it's not necessarily that relationship-based thing that they're used to. Um, so that, that's been a really interesting concept for us to dive into and try to help merchants with is actually once you launch your site, getting your customers to use it. I think it starts with the culture, right? I think a lot of companies they're scared to change their culture and be like, okay, we want our customers. Like the first thing is like, do you really want your customers to buy online? And I feel like when you really dive in, they're like, they're not actually going to force much change. So that's the first step. It's like, if you really believe in it, you got to kind of like, we had a, we had a company that was pretty successful at B2B commerce. And what he told me was that he just forced his customers to do it. They basically like were really aggressive about training their customers, making them order online having the sales reps, having the customer service push them online so that especially things that don't require like consulting or a sales rep, if it's just like, hey, I want to place this order. It's like, okay, you can do that online. Like, you don't need to call me. They were very aggressive about kind of forcing their customers to buy online unless obviously there are times when you need to call a sales rep and there's something that goes beyond probably just placing an order, right? But um, that to me, it's like, I think a lot of companies are just scared to like, go that uh, deep into pushing their customers to buy online. And then they just, yeah. will just do it automatically, which is just not reality. You know? well, I think a lot of it does start with the sales, the merchant sales team, because like you said, they, they already have those relationships in place. And so if they're the ones to, you know, train their customers to do this and, you know, um, convince their customers that this is going to make their lives easier if they do this. So there's kind of two layers. There's the, the, e-commerce team or whoever's doing the implementation convincing their sales team that it's a good idea. Um, and then there's the sales team kind of convincing the customers. And when you're the merchant who's trying to convince your sales team to get on board with this and get excited about it, um, some of the interesting ways I've seen that happen is um, merchants really training their sales team on the fact that this is not going to take from your job. This is actually going to add to it. And this is how, like you can use sales masquerading tools to go in and help your customers. Um, you can, you know, it can really add to the product availability and selection that you have available to your customers to like help them even more. And it doesn't, it can still be tied to you. And so some of the most successful companies I've seen um, have shown that, hey, the salespeople who are really adopting e-commerce and using it as a tool um, are actually selling even more than they used to. Um, and then other good, salespeople follow on. Do you have any good example? Uh, I mean, you talked about a high level. Are you sh any, share any more detail on that? Or, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I guess you can't I can, say who the customer was or I don't know. What, love to dive into that more. because Yeah, for sure. I can, I can talk a little bit more detail about it. So, um, one example is like a, a really big building supplies um, company and they have branches. So they have um, they previously really only sold in person and 
Um, they had big commercial customers. So their sales reps in the store had relationships with custom, you know, contractors in the area who would come into the store to buy what they need. Um, and when they launched e-commerce, like some reps and some branches kind of took that on more with more gusto than others. And the ones that did um, realized and, and saw that, hey, now I can offer so many more products than I was able to offer on my floor. Now I can offer these niche products that before I didn't have space for on the floor because they weren't moving enough. Um, now I can help my customers reorder really easily. So if they're out and about, they'll reorder from me instead of going to the next closest competitor who happen to be physically oh, wow. closer. Yeah, that's interesting. Like how much business are they losing because yeah. they this little bolt and I can get it at like Home Depot or something. But exactly. Yeah. Well, you and know, even taking taking oh, that to the next level with subscriptions too. Mm -hmm. Um, and that that's another big thing. Um in the B2B and, and um, just making that, you know, quick reorder buttons. Hey, you always um, order these things, make it really easy to have that shop shopping list and just hit one button and you can buy it all again. Well, you, you, uh, you know, part of what I was going to say is connected to that. It's not the subscription and the reorder, but it's also the service plans, uh, which is a big deal for certain kinds of things in B2B. You know, let's say you're getting supplies for a restaurant or for a hospital or whatever. You know, service plans are one of these things that are, are often very sales intensive. And I've, I've led sales teams too, right? They're really a lot of work, they, they're, but they're really benefiting hugely from adding that into, you know, e-commerce. Because a lot of, you know, with, with like a good video or a good description of the product, often the customers are doing all the work for them now. They're selling these service plans at, at a rate that it, you wouldn't expect, you know, and it's just been such a boon for a lot of these, uh, you know, big companies. And the other thing I'd quickly mention too, is that the, the sales teams can now, you know, send out like links, you know, to the pre-orders, right? It's not even just a reorder, right? It's like, here are the new products that we think that you should do, just click and buy or, or click and, you know, click and we'll discuss it if we need to in a quick, you know, live chat or something, right? Or a call and then you're done, right? And then we pop it into the cart. It's just gotten so much easier than like the the back and forth and the time. It's quicker and it's easier and it's more money, right? Yeah. yeah. One of the quotes that I love that I'll never forget was hearing uh, one of the, the merchant salespeople say, I couldn't believe it that I was selling orders in my sleep. And that's another thing is like you're doing work without having to actively be working because e-commerce is working for you and you can use it in that way. And so I just thought that was really cool. Yeah. If I was a sales rep at one of these companies, I would try and really dig in because to your point, it's like, let's say contractor XYZ, maybe they do 10 houses a year. I don't know. I'm just making this up. Maybe they're spending, you know, 500 grand a year on supplies and that customer is only spending 20 grand with, with me. It's like, well, why, you know, what's stopping them from spending the full 500 grand? Maybe you don't sell everything, but maybe you sell almost half or a big chunk of that number, right? It's like they could be using this, this program, almost like an e-commerce program and services to your, to your point, Tim, is like build this like relationship with them to be like, okay, how can we make it attractive to you to bring all of our, your business to me? And if you can just buy online really easily, get a subscription, I'll get, make sure it gets there on time to all your construction sites or like, cause to your point, what's probably happening is they're doing a lot of things on convenience. Oh crap. I ran out of this thing. I'm going to go run to Hope Depot and I need a bolt or whatever it is, you know? So they're probably buying yeah. like 20 different vendors because uh, based on convenience, you know? Exactly. And the other thing that you can do is you can start to use, you know, once as a merchant, once you've gotten your core e-commerce functionality in place, you can also start to, get really creative with the technology. So this this um, building supply company example we're talking about, they now have an online estimation tool where you can just upload your plans and it spits out what you need um, for their customers. Wow. Hey, they can estimate exactly what they need. And so there's just so many more ways you can add on this, this interesting functionality to keep making your customer's life easier. And then they're gonna keep buying more and more from you. Um, and that's kind of that cycle that we see of e-commerce growth for these companies that 
are doing tens and tens of millions offline and we're only doing a little bit online until this snowball starts to really take off. I'll just add one other thing uh, to this because uh, it just came to mind. And I don't know if this is like going to be a surprise to people, but Wayfair is working on a project and it's, it is hybrid B2B, B2C. And what it, the tool is going to allow you to do is to say, you know, I have a, a condo complex and I need to have furnished units for sales. It's a five bedroom, boom, boom, boom. Do you want to have modern, you know, do you want to have like uh-huh. a Victorian furniture? Click and buy. And it fills up every single room in the house. with Deliver it, set it up and like, yeah, it's like this full service. Full rooms. So it's like living room, dining room, three bedroom. Office. Will they turn it up for you too, or I wonder how far uh, they go. do. They actually the plan is that they're going to just have flat prices for a lot of these things. It's like average of two thousand a room, boom, 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 and you know to pick this style and then install on this day white glove delivery, and then you know you're seeing the three D view. Wow. So this to me is such a great tool for B two B and B two C. It's like I want to do one room in my house that could still be really valuable, and you get a good deal, or you could imagine the B2B side of this and like, you know, I need to furnish offices. I need yeah, to. Yeah, I'm thinking just about our, uh, we have an Airbnb rental business with my wife. And she, she, she does all the work. I don't do much, but uh, she spends a lot of time on just, you know, making things nicer and making rooms nicer. So I could see how that could be like super valuable, especially the big list of, you know, right now uh, the market's tough. So we're not really looking, but she was to buy a new house and you got to, you know, kind of revamp it a lot of work in that first initial each room got to go through each room and Mm -hmm. yeah imagine if you could just have a service do every room for you that'd be crazy it's great i love the idea and i'd love to see how it actually works out um i I wanted to uh kind of transition a little bit from what you said but that's pretty awesome to hear that you have a customer that's adopting this and the the branches are getting more and then like the other less sophisticated branches have to like adapt because they're like, oh, we don't want to fall behind the guys that are selling like triple us because they actually use the website. And then you have this estimator tool. I mean, you, you mentioned something to us, uh, you know, before the podcast is that you see some B2B companies really being innovative. What I guess kind of scares me and I kind of want to drill this fear into the companies not doing anything because I feel like if they, this is what scares me essentially is that you have people like that and then you have people doing nothing. I mean, what's going to happen to these companies that are barely selling online or they're just not really taking it seriously? It's just how much longer can they, you know, we saw what happened with retail and what happened with the companies that didn't do anything. And <laughs> most of them, didn't, yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. It's kind of like you, you got to keep up or you're going to get left behind. And I think what you've said is exactly right. That right now, what we're seeing is there's this assumption that, you know, all B2Bs are old school and they're not good with technology and they're just going to do things the way it's been done. But I actually spend quite a bit of time dispelling that myth. I think it's, you know, some B2Bs are definitely that way. A lot still are, but there's also B2B merchants doing some of the most interesting things that I've seen in e-commerce, to your point. Um, They're the ones pushing the limit of e-commerce. They're the ones doing fascinating things with our platform. And I think what we're seeing is those companies right now are leagues ahead and they're the only ones in their industry doing that and they're making this huge progress. But we're starting to see more and more people getting online and doing this. And so what's going to happen is instead of, oh yeah, some people are more advanced in e-commerce and they're the only ones doing that, it's going to be, if you're not doing that, you're going to get left behind. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that shift is prop, happening. It's not enough of a value prop. Maybe there's the occasional one. Like TJ Maxx is one of those ones that I just don't know how they did it, but they seem to have survived the e-commerce wave with this like discount inventory that just revolves so fast. But they don't they don't do a ton of e-commerce. So there's probably gonna be something like that that survives, but I feel like that's the exception, not the average retailer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I do think there is like quite a bit of urgency at this point, because things are happening faster and faster. Um, Of course, COVID accelerated a lot of that. But it's not just COVID. It's once businesses start doing this and see the benefits, they're investing even more. You know, that survey I mentioned um, that we did of of B2B merchants investing in e-commerce platform technology was um, the number two or three priority that they had. Um, 
costs out of all of their business concerns. So we're definitely seeing it. it. Don't think it's not coming to your industry because it is even like those heavy industrials. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll give an example that people aren't even uh, probably aren't even aware of. There was a, a, someone I spoke with in the past week. Uh, they were talking about like, sadly, like cemetery supply stuff. And, you know, people do stone carving and monuments and it seems like the most old school thing in the world right it's bronze plaques it's carved stone whatever this is totally digitized now apparently all the communication around the country between you know cemeteries and crematoriums all these different things that we don't really think about even though they're all parts of our world that's actually moved ahead very very quickly in the last few years you know, and um, maybe sadly, because there was so much stuff going on with COVID and the way people could communicate or whatever, but still, it they really, didn't want to do in person uh, yeah. pass the COVID around. So it's yeah, like, I guess, yeah. but, but it surprised me, but it was actually a really pleasant surprise to hear that it's even extended to those types of things that are still largely like craft, like people carving stone, right? It's a remarkable thing. Yeah. Yeah, I do think a lot of this is happening faster than people think. I mean, I'll go back to that Kroger example. Just a few years ago, hardly any negligible portion of their total sales were online, and now they're in the top 10 retailers for e-commerce. Yeah, I mean, I it is a few at, like, years. Old, old reports, they were definitely not in the old reports. Uh, nope. And uh, I want to say it was like JC Penny was up there. They're definitely not in the top ten, right? I don't think they're even close anymore. No, was yeah. was A and P supermarket I mean, on there? Back Amazon, with- Apple, Walmart. I think those guys. There's a few guys. Sears, JC Penny. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. Even, uh, even Walmart. Eagles was in the top ten for a while. I think they maybe mm-hmm. dropped off from the top ten. Um, they're probably still up there in total online sales. But to your point, like these Kroger guys who are, you know, Fortune. 50 or fortune 10 or whatever, you know, they're, they're obviously not stupid, you know, like they, you know. Right. And I think if you're a small company, even more reason, even more urgency, because the bigger companies are starting to do this now and you don't want to get left behind. So I think there's urgency for, for smaller players to to start investing. Is like, at what point are we all just working for the fortune 500, right? Like, (laughs) yeah. And I don't think any of us want to see that. So we got to help Amazon, Walmart or Target or like, you know, it's, it is, that's part of what I did want to accomplish with this podcast is like, and one of the reasons we've partnered so strongly with big commerce is we feel like big commerce and the knowledge, there's still time for these SMBs to evolve. And if you're smart about the investments, but to your point, you know, if you wait too long and these big guys are going to be dumping millions, if not literally billions at like the Wayfair level into this stuff. So you can't just kind of neglect it, you know? Yeah. I mean, one of the things, one of my favorite things about the small business aspect of this transformation um, is it's such a huge growth lever for them. Because if you're a small B2B business and you just operate in your region with customers only in your town, and you might do really well with that, but if you can get online, you can start to expand to new regions, acquire new customers. I mean, the digital marketing wave is also hitting B2B, another topic I could go on about, but <laughs> B2Bs are starting to have you know, more blog um, marketing and working on SEO and new customer acquisition to where it's like you can expand your service area um, in you know days by going online. And I think that's really cool. Well, you know, I, I've used them as an example on this podcast a couple of times before, but I was fortunate enough to work with Symantec and, and when they were splitting between Symantec and Norton, you know, Symantec is more B2B and Norton is more B2C. But what was fascinating is, you know, I was really helping them with a lot of content related things. And it's exactly your point, right? They realized that they could grow B2B extraordinarily well, like through blogs and through all of these very specific, you know, content worlds that did allow for commerce where people are purchasing different kinds of security plans and and what have you and it was a, I don't know how many dozens of sites they ended up you know putting up and this was you know a few years ago already it's 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 really moving well for cybersecurity you know and that whole area is, is great uh, but there are also just tons of other areas like that I keep hearing about I try to like find things that I'm a little surprised about all the time. So I brought up the cemetery thing, but cybersecurity really is a no brainer in a way. And, and it's great to hear companies doing that kind of thing. 
Yeah, I think uh, digital marketing and B2B has got a lot of opportunity. Just uh, one of our favorite customers, small business, they had acquired, he's he's definitely savvy. This isn't his first time doing it. He acquired a business on big commerce, um, you know, wholesale, you know, distribution kind of business, B2B. And the first obvious, his the Google ads was like a disaster. Like it was clear that it hadn't been like optimized at all. And just by fixing and kind of improving on Google shopping and Bing, like his numbers just skyrocketed. It was pretty insane within like months. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's kind of this established playbook for customer acquisition in B2C, but it hasn't been that way in B2B. And so once B2Bs are discovering these tools, they are improving their business so much um, with stuff like that. And um, you know, I have friends and family members working in really B2B type industries like yeah, industrial display technology and things. And now they're doing educational webinar series and attracting new customers that are learning about them from these videos. So there's just a lot of stuff that B2Bs are starting to take out of the B2C playbook and kind of make their own. Yeah. One of the companies that uh, I heard about, you know, I want to say they're just called something like Store Display Inc. I mean, they were very straightforward name, but you know, it's, it's exactly what you would imagine. They make uh, mannequins, they make, you know, glass cases, they make rolling racks, you know, for whatever, anything that a, a retail location might need. They started, uh, you know, doing TikToks, among other things, which was kind of surprising and weird, but it's like, you know, look what you might see in one of our cases. And they would find all of these clients of theirs who were showing like, you know, funky jewelry or clothing or whatever in their display cases. And it just made it far more interesting than you would guess. And all of a sudden they have name recognition and all of a sudden they get new clients. So it really is fascinating just watching that loop continue to happen. Cause it's again, it's like B2B store display on TikTok. When you just say it, it's like, what? But then they did something great with it, you know? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And I get asked a lot um, from B2B merchants, you know, how should I be using social? And I think it depends. Obviously, every B2B business is so unique, but we do see a lot of, okay, you're actually trying to inspire your customers by showing what that finished product could look like for their, for their end customer. Mm -hmm. Um, so uh, similar to the, the store mannequin example, you said, um, Gildan is one of our customers, um, and they're, you know, a huge brand, American apparel, comfort colors, uh, Gildan name brand, all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, and they have a pretty big Instagram presence showing, you know, some of the inspiration that you can make using their clothes as a, as a blank canvas. Um, and they run a lot of different handles and kind of have this designer community where they're trying to engage the people designing stuff um, using their clothes. And so there's just kind of this extra layer in B2B, but I think the tools, you know, are still really useful if you can get creative with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I think also just like simple things like LinkedIn is still mm -hmm. really effective. Um, but what I think B2B hasn't quite figured out well enough is like, you kind of have to build your personal brand and it's not something that I think a lot of B2B, especially like industrial manufacturing companies are comfortable doing like, Hey, I gotta like promote myself on LinkedIn. <laughs> and I'm, I've, I've actually started yeah i've started to see more of that actually you know with yeah. people um these industrial brands just getting more fun with it you know like showing you know their staff in the warehouse um you know goofing around kind of showing their personality and to our point about relationship based um kind of bringing that personal aspects online too so i think it, it's really interesting to see how they're using that do you have any good marketing stories of something that you thought was really impressive from a customer uh, or just a B2B business? You're like, that's, that was really cool. Or they did a really good job in a certain way. Uh, I might have to think about that one. I, I can't think of something else. <laughs> Steve, we wanted to put you on the spot. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be anything. I mean, even if it's just like, they're doing a great job with SEO or Google shopping or something like that, that, is really taking off, you know, that's some of the stuff that we're seeing is just basic stuff, but it's just doing it well, right? Google shopping, Bing, Bing ads are actually, we're seeing huge return because no one advertises on Bing. It's very, very profitable. profitable. 
Yeah, very small audience, very profitable. Yeah, yeah but it's not even that. I mean, it's like 10, 20%. It's like a decent enough audience for still a big chunk of people, but the ROI, the, the, the bids are so much lower than Google that we're getting better ROI. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I do think a lot of it is just it's it's simple stuff executed well, or it's creativity and B2B where there hasn't been before. So um, one of my favorite customers is Tigris, um, and they're kind of in the industrial supply space. And they've been having a lot of fun with their um, LinkedIn presence. And, and they're the ones doing kind of what I mentioned of showing their team a little bit more, getting more personal. They have a series where they'll take pictures of their products around the world and different oh, wow. places. Customers will send them in and show how their products are being used what, um, in different countries. How, how do Tigris. You- Tigris. How do you spell that? Just so I can... T-Y-G-R-I-S. See, I would not have guessed that. <laughs> T-Y-G-R-E-S, you said? I-S. I-S. And what do they what do they do? What kind of supplies? Um, it's like industrial, um, like, like glues and uh like lubricants. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you uh, know, like cleaning factory. supplies too. Yeah. food safe, grease and oils. Mm-hmm. That's the thing about a lot of these businesses. Not stuff that you think about on your day-to-day uh, <laughs> life. <laughs> Maybe if yeah, you and in a restaurant or something, you know. Um, but yeah. Yeah, they're really advanced in their industry. And they were another story of kind of COVID transformation where overnight they had to really reinvent the way they were doing business. And they have some really big goals um, that are happening pretty fast for them now that they're online. Um, they previously only serviced in the UK. They're expanding internationally now. So yeah, I see they're in Scotland, um, right? They are. I find yes. that a lot of uh, UK, European companies are ahead of a lot of the US companies. I, I don't That's know. exactly right. Yep. That's what I see too. Um, a lot of the biggest, uh, most interesting customers we have in B2B are in the UK or in EMEA in general. What do you think that is? Do you think it's just that culturally they're further ahead and people are more accepting of e-commerce there? Um, I wonder why that is. That I, yeah, I tend to see them just being ahead in e-commerce in general. You know, they're they adopted headless, I think, faster than um, in other places. I think part of it, honestly, is that in the U.S you can service such a big market just within the US, whereas in EMEA, um, you know, it's beneficial to be able to expand to other countries um, sooner. And so I think that's a a part of the reason why they're adopting online is because they're realizing like, hey, I can now, you know, more easily offer these different currencies and these different product selections and start going into other yeah, there, there's a there's a lot to be said for that because I was working with a company based in Sofia, Bulgaria a while ago, and they were a pretty great company doing apparel and whatnot, but they were really just Bulgarian, right? And their whole idea was like, well, you know, we got to break out. We got to like do more and it's got to be probably not just Europe. We're probably going to go global. We'll figure it out. So, you know, they knew that they couldn't just stay in that one you know, community and really explode in the way that they wanted to. And I think that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's almost like American companies have gotten too comfortable, right? It's, you can, you know, and I think that's part of the problem with B2B, especially in America, is that they are almost too comfortable, right? They have this almost exclusive agreement to distribute in the region. That's the other thing about a lot of B2B businesses are like, I feel like they're only successful because they have these like exclusive rights. And how long is that going to continue where you're the distributor of New England or, you know what I mean? Like, at what point do the manufacturers go, hey, why, you know, why are we giving away so much margin? Or they Those are disappearing, by the way. I keep hearing that. So maybe maybe in a few years, that kind of stuff will just go away. Hmm. Yeah. Just adding to the urgency, too. I mean, honestly, it's it's the time is now. If, if you're thinking about it, I, it's it's here. The time was yesterday. So I, <laughs> I think everybody is kind of realizing that. And, and that's why I love being working in e-commerce right now, especially within B2B. Yeah, it's like very, very innovative, cutting edge stuff that's happening and moving really fast. Are there any um, any other things in B2B that you think are you know, maybe aren't obvious that people should be thinking about? 
Um, I think another one, and I guess you could debate, some people probably do think this is obvious, some probably don't, but the use of data analytics, um, I think is another thing that's been very advanced in B2C for a long time, but is now hitting B2B. And it's just another reason to get online because you have so much more data, um, more data and more easily usable data about what your customers are doing, Mm -hmm. um, what they're purchasing, what products are purchased together, how much products are repeat purchased and at what intervals. I mean, there are so many different things that you can get into um, with kind of business intelligence tools that I think B2Bs are starting to realize that and do more with it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like with the e-commerce data, I think you guys have an integration with BigQuery. You could do all this data science and find out so much about the customer, but if they buy offline, you really only have that one customer interaction and it might not be it's almost like not a data point. It's an anecdote from the co- the sales rep um, or in store. You know, it's pretty hard to track what they actually did, but so you don't know all the things that they were thinking about. You know. Yeah, exactly. You're able to actually track those purchases over time and like see patterns and and when new things are emerging um, or you know new products or new product categories. You can kind of see them becoming bigger and and shift your focus to those. I think a little bit more than. It, when you don't have that and you're just relying on historically, these things have always sold the best, but you might be missing something. Um, and so that's where we see, you know, data starting to play in. It also kind of feeds back into this circle because then you can use that data to improve your e-commerce, um, improve your personalization on your site, um, recommend new products to your customers that they've never thought of before. So uh, we kind of just see that as a, as a big loop. Yeah, this artificial, you know, we didn't really, that's a whole nother scary topic, artificial intelligence, machine learning, that's getting, you know, uh, the search add-ons that the partners you guys have, they're getting better. So searches, like, the more data you have, you can leverage all these different tools in terms of machine learning. And uh, that's, a, you're right. I mean, I feel like that's, that's another reason where if you fall too far behind, it's like you can't kind of catch up to that self-fulfilling prophecy of all this data kind of improving itself basically right like the more data you have you kind of have a leg up on your competitors so the sooner you can start taking advantage of that the better um so that's definitely another trend that we we see is really big yeah and i'll just uh you know throw this out there for our listeners you know for for uh for b2b in particular I would, again i was talking with this is a company that was a restaurant supply company and i'd spoken to a few other folks recently but you know, they're spending a lot of money on analytics lately. And, and part of it is just to understand, well, where are all the restaurants in the country, right? And they didn't actually have this data, even as a restaurant supply company, which ones are open, what hours, what types of food do they sell? If they sell that type of food, what type of equipment do they generally have? You know, the business has been around over 100 years, right? but they never really had the full complement of all that kind of data that you now have available. So they can really automate this for their sales teams and to get offers put together for e-commerce and say, okay, Chinese restaurants in New York, Boston, San Francisco, et cetera, need X, right? And it was more like in the mind of the salespeople and these price lists. And it's just so great to see people doing that kind of stuff now. Yeah, I think so too. It's like, it's, it is really exciting. And I think um, kind of having come from B2C world and like seeing that now being executed in B2B is um, it's only going faster and there's only more ahead, I think. Um, So we're kind of getting towards the, uh, the end here. Um, What would you leave people with? I mean, especially with big commerce, they can, they can sign up for a free trial, right? I mean, that's part of what I always say too. It's like, there's no more excuse anymore. Like just test it out, go load your products up, like, you know, do something, but sitting around kind of on an old website, probably not a good strategy. (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, sign up for a trial, get a demo. um, And we have, I think one of the big things about big commerce and our agency partner network is we have the e-commerce expertise to help you. So you're not going to be alone in this um there's you know a lot of service that we provide to make sure that big commerce is fitting to you not the other way around um and that we're we're there um as a resource and i think you know that goes with our agency partners too is um i think a lot of b2bs are just scared to get started but 
um, that's why we're all here to help with that. Um, and so I'd say like, yeah, there's no better day than yesterday. And the next best day is today. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good, a good motto. I mean, I, I like the quote from uh, the author, James Baldwin, the time is always now, but I really like, you know, there's no better day than yesterday. That's really good too. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'd love to have you back on, uh, especially because, you know, you guys just did these acquisitions. Do you think uh, maybe towards the end of the year, maybe next year, you'll probably have some pretty exciting things about how the evolution of that plays out. And I'm sure we'll have much more exciting DVD stories about that to talk about. Yeah. Early next year, I think would be a great time. We got, we definitely have more stuff cooking in B2B. So that'd be (laughs) great to come back on. That's awesome. All right. Thank you for great episode 74, right? Fantastic. Thank you, guys. It was great to be on. As I said, I'm a big fan, so loved being part of it. Yeah, spread the gospel. We need we need help with marketing this podcast. <laughs> That's right. That's <laughs> it's right. hard to, it's, you know, B2B e-commerce is not always, for a lot of people, it's not the most exciting. It's not Joe Rogan, right? So we're not on the top list. But I actually, we're, we got ranked... Um, Something popped up on like, I don't know how they found me. It's some spam, but they said we were ranked like 54th in technology, some list. So I believe we're, You know, we're somewhere on a list that's kind of important. You know, right? we must be in the top three of B2B e-commerce podcasts. We're number one. Yeah. That, I know that for sure. We're number one for B2B e-commerce. That is 100%. The problem with the B2B e-commerce podcast segment is pretty small. I think we're number one. I think we are. We're like, we're like the Bulgaria of e-commerce, right? That's why we're going to expand into these other countries. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Well, you know, my playlist, we got Pivot, we got Birdcast, and then we got you guys. So I think it's, uh, at least it's, it's coming up. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Fiona. Thank you so much. It's great. <laughs> yeah, I guess to talk to you guys.